I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I uh, got a fun one today. Uh, he probably won't mind me saying this, but a fellow sales guy, because a lot of people have this negative connotation with sales, and, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into a little more of, uh, of your background. Uh, we have Sam Jacobs on the podcast. Sam is the CEO and founder of The Revenue Collective, host of the Sales Hacker podcast, board member of Tidbit's previous roles as Chief Revenue Officer, SVP Sales and Marketing, uh, SAP sales and business development. Uh, so really, you know, sales heavy focus in your career, Sam. So Sam, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So Sam, I, it's rare that I, that I interview someone who's, who's so entrenched in sales because I, I've said over and over again, although I'm, you know, CEO of Firepower, I'm loud and proud about being a sales guy. Right. I mean, it's, it's something that, 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 that I, uh, I hold as a badge of honor. I mean, what's your view on that title and kind of the connotations that, that people think about when they hear, you know, sales? Well, to your point, I think obviously the connotations are not super positive. I think a lot of people are misinformed about what sales is. And I think there's like this, this archaic out of date belief possibly from, you know, used car salesmen or other. 100%. other bad representatives of the profession that sales is pushing something on people that they don't want or need. And the reality is that sales is really about uh, creating uh, a vision for the future that aligns with the customer and getting them to agree that that vision is what they want and that the way that you can solve that problem is the best way to do it. And correspondingly, it's really about listening and problem solving and thinking about are the problems that you have related to the product that I have? And can we get to the place that you want to get to together? So now I will also admit, though, that, you know, my background uh, 20 years ago when I came out of undergrad was in finance. And, you know, all of my peers went into finance or, or strategy consulting. Very, very few people became, you know, entry-level account executives. And I still think within my peer group from, you know, kind of like, not quite Wall Street, but kind of midtown New York corporate America slash, you know, University of Virginia grads and Ivy League grads that there still is a negative connotation about sales. But for me, if I didn't want to be in finance and you want to work in technology, well, there's only two jobs fundamentally in technology. You either are writing and building the software or you're yeah. selling it. So yeah. if you don't know how to write and build it, then you're relegated to <laughs> the non-technical side of the house. And I wanted to be instrumental in helping these companies grow. And I just always had, you know, a negative connotation about consultants and people that wanted to put, put on their strategy hats all the time and didn't really understand the hard work of going out to a hundred people and having 70 of them tell you no, or 80 yeah. of them tell you no. So that's my view. I'm a believer, obviously, in sales as a profession. It is the largest profession, I think, the oldest in the world. I love that, that comment, you know, the, your, your definition as a aligning on a vision for the future. Now, that's really interesting because I totally agree with you. I think that's, that what makes someone great at sales is actually genuinely giving a shit about providing a service or a product that people want or need. But how do you go about aligning that vision? I mean, so really what I'm trying to ask is I think that there's some initial questions that salespeople get wrong 
I mean, when you're selling a brand new account, are there some kind of setup questions that, that are kind of your go-to to get your foot in the door? I don't know about get, I mean, getting my foot in the door could mean a lot of different things. It could mean if I'm just trying to get a meeting, there might be gimmicks involved and, you know, might be an email that says quick question, question mark, and uh, written in plain text so that they open it. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the thing that you said that I, that I just think is, you know, needs to be like underscored and bolded and, you know, highlighted is, is the people that give a shit. I think mm-hmm. the fundamental, I, th- I think this is just true of all successful people that like the, one of the fundamental aspects of success is true intellectual curiosity and true empathy in sales specifically, yeah. meaning if you don't have curiosity, then you can ask a bunch of rote questions that you've written down through what we call the discovery process, but you don't really care about the answers. And if you don't, if you're not really interested in other people, really interested in, in truly trying to empathize, and by empathize, I don't mean sympathize. I mean putting yourself in their shoes and imagining their life and what it's like. And if you don't find yourself ever doing that, then again, most people can tell when you're talking to somebody that doesn't care. One hundred percent. And so that genuine, you know, and I have that, I mean, I think many, many people do when you meet somebody at a cocktail party, you meet somebody at a dinner party, you meet somebody where on the street and they tell you what they do. And instead of dismissing it, you actually, you ask tons of questions because you want to know how does that business work? How does that industry work? What are the key constraints? What are the costs? Like all of us as I think entrepreneurs are just with the entrepreneurial mindset, have that curiosity. I think that's the first important ingredient. And then you know, then there is a, 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 the developed practice of how to ask the right questions. Fundamentally, what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out, assuming that you have the right person, and that's a whole other process of defining the right person. It's figuring out, is their status quo untenable? Can you ask enough questions to figure out how it can become untenable? And then can you create this future state that you can both agree on that is preferable to the status quo? So it's sort of a two-part thing. It's the first part is, getting them to think about and admit that their current situation is impossible, which is, which is difficult, and then framing a world where all of that impossibility is resolved through your solution. Let's take a step back, because I'm always curious as to how people become who they become, you know, because as you know, it's called Dealmaker's DNA. I talk a lot about nature versus nurture. You know, you talk about empathy, you talk about curiosity. I use the word authentic curiosity, because I think that some people just ask questions as pattern behavior, but they don't give a fuck be honest with you. And it's so obvious to me when someone's asking questions and they're genuinely curious versus this is the methodology that I know I have to use to try and get what I want out of you. So talk about your early like childhood. Like how did you grow up? What, 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 what happened in your childhood that may have shaped that curiosity, that empathy, that kind of drive to relate to other human beings? Well, that's interesting. I mean, my childhood was before high school, I grew up overseas and that's because my parents were in the Foreign Service for the United States. And so we lived in India, Israel, and El Salvador. And I was moving around a lot. And, you know, you'd stay in some place between two and four years. And then you'd come back to the States to be in near D.C. for one or two years. And then you'd move again. So when I think about, and then the second part of my childhood, and really I have very fond memories of that first part of moving around, largely because it felt like the arts I was basically going to private schools, private schools that were for diplomats and for other, you know, diplomats from all over the all over the world, not just American diplomats. And the exposure that you had within those schools where they really celebrated art, they celebrated sports, but there wasn't an ability to celebrate conformity because nobody was from there, you know, and everybody was coming and going all the time. And there was this openness to new groups 
kind of coming together and then disassembling as the parents of these children moved around the world. And then I got back to the States and uh, that was a whole different experience going through high school and a very negative experience actually. But I think in terms of, you know, what are the things that led me to have empathy and curiosity? I don't, I don't really know. The thing I learned from childhood was really ambition. And that was because I felt misunderstood for a lot of my life. And I felt like I needed to show the world something that was inside of me that I felt like hadn't come out. In terms of where curiosity came from, maybe that's just my parents and the cultural tradition of education and reading lots of books. But I always remember reading a lot. And I always remember thinking about the world and thinking about different types of people. And of course, I was exposed to all different kinds of people growing up because I was traveling to all of these countries. So long-winded answer. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, something that you said, I've never heard this said before, that the school that you were in didn't celebrate conformity. I think about that all the time because it's my, my biggest fear for my children is I look around at the university system, the college system, and it scares the hell out of me. I think it just creates a whole bunch of lemmings and it, it, it's very concerning. And, 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 I, and I think it's getting more and more extreme. You know, I don't want to get into a too political of a conversation. Uh, I try and avoid that. But I think that most moderate human beings can look at the, the system and say something's slightly broken right now. You I know? would agree with that. The one thing I would say in contrast, though, is that there's a whole group of people that are, you know, they talk about STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math. They talk about almost in a vocational way, you know, they're like, well, I don't use my eight, my history degree in my, uh, you know, hedge fund job or in my job as a product manager at some technology company. And I, I have to say that I think you're right. There, there, there's something broken, at least in the U.S., related to the financial incentives that these colleges and universities have. But I will say that I also noticed that too many people from what I would come from, what I would describe as like a Silicon Valley slash technology background, and they don't have a liberal arts training. They haven't really empathized, to use that word again, with the history of mankind. And as a consequence, I find them incredibly naive when it comes to political discussions. Mm-hmm. And they don't seem to fully appreciate the dynamics of human kind of behavior and motivation separate from like the building of their technology product. So I think liberal arts is actually like, I think metaphorical thinking and learning and applying lessons from all different parts of human experience to business is one of my, I don't know if it's a superpower, but it's something that I pride myself on being able to do. And I find that as I look at social media and Twitter and things like that, at fairly successful, fairly celebrated investors and entrepreneurs, I find their their insights on, on politics and on human behavior fairly facile a lot of the time. And I ascribe it to like a lack of, you know, they just haven't read enough history books. They've read lots of books about self-help and getting up early, but not enough about like, how did World War II happen? And why did we win? You know, things like that. I, th- I think if you frame that desire to have people kind of look at history a little more in a way that is self-help. And what I mean by that is we're creatures of habit, right? The more you look at history, the more you will understand why people do what they do. So I think that you're actually doing yourself a service by looking at, you know, how we have reacted over and over and over again, because you will find out that it's quite predictable. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. It's, it's incredible to me how predictable human beings are. Like, I, I, I funny enough, watched The Social Dilemma last night with my wife. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, yeah, of course. I made my team watch it. Okay. So 
there were some things that were just so fascinating to me. And it's it, look, all those concepts I understood uh, that were, were happening, but like the level at which the brainwash is genuinely happening. And I loved hearing the, I think it was one of the guys from Twitter or Facebook who said, I know what's happening and I still can't. Right. Like it's truly incredible that, 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 that we've created machines that can fundamentally change human nature. I loved how Jaron Lanier described the product because they, we often say, if it's free, you're the product. He's like, you're not quite, it's the product is their ability to change your mind and your behavior. Over a long period of time. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, wow. it's, I mean, it's certainly fascinating when Zuckerberg like says to Congress, there's no way that we affected the election at the same time. He says to every other brand, we can definitely change how people think so that they can buy your product. So, so look, I think that both of you and I are capitalists and I'm a big believer in, you know, in deregulation to some degree, but like this also scares the hell out of me. It's like, where's the happy medium? I mean, when is enough enough? Like there, I think there has to be some level of control because it's proven that these tech companies are not Right. Yes, correct. And they have to take responsibility. But how do you balance that? How do you balance the desire for, for that kind of free market enterprise with, you know, your desire to like kind of protect people from these machines? Well, I think that's, uh, that's the systems of government that we've created. That's, that's part of the role of government is to yeah. assert and insert themselves when no other actor has enough legitimacy or authority or leverage to be able to do so. I also, you know, again, like so exactly to the point about the liberal arts education, some of these people have these ideas about free speech that are so dogmatic and they're, they're so unsophisticated. It's like, you know, there's a huge history of, in the United States particularly, first of all, not all speech is free, right? You can't yell fire in a crowded theater like you're not like there are protections you're not allowed to say whatever you want whenever you want because we do understand that certain platforms have responsibilities when they create and enable the distribution and dissemination of information that's part of it and the other part of it is just the dogma around regulation it's like well do you like safe drinking water do you like you know having fewer people die in car accidents because of seatbelts? do you like being able to eat your food and, and trust that like when you open a can of aspirin that it's going to be mostly aspirin and like these are all benefits of regulation. I think that the way you balance it is hopefully having a representative government where the people come in and can vote. And you have to have some, I think you do. I mean, we have it with newspapers, right? Newspapers are the earlier form of Facebook and social media, and they are, they are subject to laws and to regulate. They can't print whatever they want whenever they want. So yeah, I think that it's up to our representatives of government to try and create some structure and create some regulation with the understanding that yes, I get it, there will be unintended consequences and there are old people that don't really get it and blah, blah, blah. But to the point, I, just, I think we all need, regulated capitalism is what I believe in, actually. I don't believe in unfettered capitalism because unfettered capitalism has been proven to harm people and it's been proven to be incredibly volatile and it's what led to the Great Depression. And you know there are many, many harms to people doing whatever they want because of the way that incentives work and because, is, because of the way that capital especially our laws of taxation, but like capital and influence and power just accrue to the winners over time to a, in a, at a compounding rate, which makes it harder and harder for smaller people to come in. So yeah. at any rate. And I think that the, the issue that we're facing in the future is these, these giant companies have in many ways become as powerful, if not more powerful than the government itself. Exactly. I mean, right. The amount of lobbying, power and money. It's hard to imagine a world where Amazon doesn't continue to just dominate. Like it's, you, you, when you own the supply chain, it is what it is. I mean, I say, I say to everyone, the only thing that's going to stop Amazon taking over everything in their domain is government regulation. 
there's nothing else that, 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 that can stop them. They, they're just too large. That's, that's uh, the same thing for Facebook. Yeah. And yeah. the same thing for Google, you know, and again, I don't think that these companies are, I mean, I love that we're talking about this. This is a refreshing thing to talk about on a quote unquote sales podcast, but it's just incentives, you know, companies respond to incentives and capitalism responds to incentives. So yeah, I do think that there's a major role for regulation because you're right. I'm thinking right now, as we head into the U S election of like wishing that Jack would turn off Trump's Twitter account, like beginning November 3rd from through the period where we finalize, like, because he has that much power and because that's the way that Trump communicates with the world. And I want as you know, I want the election counting to, <laughs> to proceed at a normal rate. And in this, in this particular world, Twitter has more power than like the U S government or any of our other laws. Yeah. So. Yeah. I wonder what Trump would do if that ever happened. <laughs> He'd do something. <laughs> He'd be very upset. <laughs> he would be very upset. So Sam, switching gears, you know, you talked earlier about finishing with a finance degree and not wanting to go into finance. And then you really, you're left with two choices. You build a machine or you sell the machine. Talk about your early career, some of the roles that were transformative, what you learned along that way that others can learn from and, and some of the right moves for, you know, individuals listening who, who want to develop a path and become, you know, high level sales individuals. You know, what are some of the things you've learned and, and what are some of, the, some of the roles that you think people should be open to that, that could be transformative for them? I say that the first thing, if you want to become a, a senior executive in the revenue world, I think that uh, the biggest gap, and I'm actually teaching a, through my company, we're teaching a CRO school for basically VPs of sales and marketing that are kind of, you know, about five to 10 years earlier in their career than me, but they want to get into the C-suite. So what is the first thing that we're teaching them? And this is something I learned through undergraduate finance degree, a theory of business. You know, the first book we read in the comm school, commerce school, which is, you know, the, the UVA business school undergrad is uh, this McKinsey book, Copeland's book on valuation. Like, what is value? How is value created? Mm. And of course, because, you know, I was a finance concentration, I learned how to do financial modeling. And then my first job out of school was investment banking. So I don't particularly like, you know, the world of finance. I don't think that that's the culmination of all of my professional endeavors is to work at a hedge fund or something like that, or to work as a venture capitalist. But I do think that the, the difference between great revenue leaders and mediocre revenue leaders is that great revenue leaders have an appreciation for how value is created, both in a theoretical way and then in a sort of in a quantitative way. They, they understand how to read an income statement, how to read a financial statement, how to read a balance sheet, and how to understand what, what does value creation mean and how does that translate. So that's kind of one thing I would encourage people to do in the first two this week and last week in CRO school. That's exactly what we're doing. First thing is developing a theory of value creation. And then second is translating that to unit economics and to all of the, the you know, LTV to cap, lifetime value to customer acquisition cost and payback period, really trying to understand the business, particularly B2B technology from the CFO seat before we jump into the CRO seat. It's amazing to me how, how many people don't understand that it's not about revenue and it's about margin. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating when I, when well, I see people talk when about When equity it. capital is free, maybe that's why they think that. They're like, well, maybe I can just hide my losses indefinitely as long yeah. as I show the right revenue growth. It really is amazing when people say, oh, well, we have this much revenue growth. I'm like, your margins went down by 13 points. You just gave it away. I mean, that's not, that's not real growth. <laughs> well, in the world of venture capital-backed companies, very, very few people have been taught to think about margin. And really? then gross margin is a complicated thing, I think, in a software business. But so for those people, CEO, CFO, COO are very well-established kind of C-level titles. This idea of chief revenue officer, I know it's not new, 
But for most yeah. people, traditionally, yeah, fairly new. Maybe you want to just talk about like where you see that CRO sitting in that boardroom table amongst the more traditional C-level executives and what their what their real roles are. Well, I think I don't know the history of of exact history, but my brain wants to tell me that the original CRO role came from the media world. And it was the person that was responsible, not just for sales, but also for marketing and for brand. I think that does not necessarily what it means in today's world. Today, I think it basically means a very expensive head of sales. (laughs) And that person sits next to the chief marketing officer. Oftentimes, sometimes there's even a chief customer officer, you know, and the reporting lines are basically, I, you know, they're, they vary based on the company, but ideally the purpose of the CRO, in my opinion, is to have a long-term sophisticated perspective on how revenue is generated and yes, profitable revenue. And I think that that's fundamentally what the job is. And I think that, again, that's different from a VP of sales because exactly to your point, I think most VPs of sales are trained. They don't even understand margin. You know, they, they're not taught to think about it. What they're taught to think about is annual recurring revenue growth month over month, quarter over quarter and hire this many people. And we have a headcount driven revenue plan. The more salespeople you hire, this is how we make money. And the thing that that's, of course, not true. That's not how companies do make money. And that's what I think the expectation is at the CRO level, that you understand more fundamentally, which is what I'm trying to teach people, how is money made? And again, like the, the biggest mistake that people make is they think that money is made by investing in sales. And that's not really true. Money is made by investing in sales and marketing combined, collectively, and really and, and really in the order of it, it's marketing, sales, and customer success. But that's how money is made. And first thing that people miss is that they think, okay, money is made by investing in sales and money is made by me hiring salespeople. And we have this many salespeople and they produce this much in revenue. So if I hire this many more, they will produce proportional amounts of new revenue. And that's not true because salespeople are good at turning demand into revenue, but they're not good at creating demand. And you often need marketing or some kind of demand generation function to create demand. And so revenue growth is about not just the act of hiring salespeople to turn demand into revenue, but fundamentally understanding how do I create demand, which is another way of saying, how do I get a meeting, right? <laughs> and can I get hundreds of meetings at scale through the machine that I build? And then I can turn those into, into money. The, the marketing and then sales makes total sense to me. But why do you put customer success third? I'm, Only I'm because I'm just thinking of the journey of the customer. They okay. become aware of the product, they become a customer, and then customer success is introduced. Because I think that it's, it's like when I look at tech companies, I think one of the biggest things that they screw up on is retention. They work all this time getting new customers, and then they completely screw up in the implementation of that customer success. And I agree with you. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like How much easier is it to, to keep a client happy than winning one to begin with? But of it's course. like over and over again, even like sophisticated businesses like banks, it's unbelievable. You get a better deal moving banks than you ever do staying with your own bank. It makes no sense. You're right. And, and my, one of my mantras in my company is I'm always going to be more invested in customer success than in sales. And from the headcount, everything. There's, I want there to be more people in customer success, more investments there than in sales. Because fundamentally, to speak of unit economics, how do you get new customers without spending a lot of money on sales and marketing? Well, the way that you do that is your existing customers are happy and they tell their friends. Right. So like the best marketing you can have is happy customers. So so let's take a step back. You know, you talked about, you know, reading the theory, you know, the, the first two weeks. What are some of the other tools that you think sales people need in the toolbox? I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, I think the best thing that I ever did in my career was spent the, the, the first two years of building my business on the phones, cold calling. 
I truly believe cold calling is one of the most important skill sets you could ever have as a salesperson. It's humbling. You understand how to deal with rejection. You understand how people react. You know, are there other skill sets that you think are, are really important for that, you know, that person who wants to be a CRO or, or you know, VP of sales, whatever it might be? Well, there's tactical skill sets, yes. So you know, I think to your point, question asking is a skill that you can develop. Now, again, exactly like we said earlier, I think uh, you can be great at asking questions, but if you're a sociopath or a complete narcissist, I don't think you're going to be that successful, but that still is a skill that you can develop. I think the skill of organizing your day is something that's quite important for most effective leaders and most effective salespeople and the skill of prioritization and understanding that you have to believe in the power of, and this is why a lot of athletes are so successful, both at business and at sales, but just delayed gratification that you want to train for a marathon. That means that if you want to run a good marathon, you're training for between three to five months and you're training pretty much every day. And there's no one day that is the determinant of your success, but the, com- the, the compounding of every day is. And so I think, I don't know if that's inherent, you know, nature versus nurture, but just the skill of discipline and of repetition, I think is another important tactic. I think there's probably negotiation and closing skills that become important. And I think that not to be, you know, wishy-washy or fluffy or whatever you want to call it, but I think that the most important skill is just the skill of, de- of mapping out your life, even if it's not, you know, hyper-specific, but saying, where do I want to be in five years? And creating a vision of that and yeah. working backwards from that so that you can be working towards it, knowing where you want to go. I mean, it's a complete cliche, but it's true. But if you don't know where you're going, you'll never know if you get there. So how do you figure out what do you want? What do you want in five years and 10 years? What do you want your life to look like? Let's imagine it. And then we can figure out if you're doing the right things to get there. Let's jump to the nature versus nurture, nurture discussion. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer that someone, look, there's in every skill set, it's a spectrum. You have someone who's completely incompetent and someone who's the best in the world at it. But I truly do believe someone who is not built for sales can't generate enough skills to do it. Like if you're a massive introvert and you're not empathetic, and you're never going to be a good salesperson, in my opinion. I mean, I, like, I can meet someone and like immediately I'm like, oh, this person's great at sales. Like I, I could just tell. Like there's something that there's an energy off of them that is, is obvious to me. And I'm, I'm wondering if you agree with that or, or, or not, because you're in the business of teaching people to be better. So I guess it's hard for you to think, no, you can never be a salesperson. But I think that you have to have some level of nature to find yourself in this world and be successful in, in this world. I probably disagree more than I agree, actually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not even trying to talk my book because I don't think I am. But I'm just thinking back on the most successful salespeople I've worked with. I'm personally an introvert, or, or I guess I'm an ambivert. I'm not some big extroverted person. And that doesn't really mean that I'm not, but I'm deeply curious. I'm deeply curious about other people. I just don't get energy from de facto interacting with other people. I get energy from interesting interactions often that are about learning something new, which is a subtle difference, but for me, an important one. And I'm just thinking about the guy in my head who worked for me, who was the best salesperson I've known. And you would not, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that he, when, when you meet him, you think he's an odd person, that he's just weird and strange. But he has this quality that I often refer to when I'm talking about sales, which is he approaches people like he's a naive alien right? Like he, I don't know if most people have not seen Starman with Jeff Bridges because it's like too early for them. But basically 
he, it's like he's come from another planet and he's got questions about every single thing that we do. You know, why, why are you walking the dog? It looks like the dog is in control. You know, what is the purpose of the leash? Is that to attach you to the dog or the dog to you? Just somebody that can really openly ask very naive questions, but not from a point of any kind of contentiousness. There's no aggression there. It's really, so somebody says that's too expensive. And the person says, why do you say that? It doesn't feel expensive to me at all you know, as opposed to being offended by it or triggering some kind of emotional response. I've got to think it over. Uh, you know, thanks for the call. I've got to think it over. Well, what do you need to think about? I'm curious. <laughs> it's like, well, I need to think about whether I want to buy it. Well, it's $25. What's there to think about? You either do or you don't. So it's somebody that can ask those types of questions. There's probably, so for me, the nature versus nurture thing is really mostly about ambition, even more so than it's about. See, I, I, I think in sales in particular, I find it's more about self-awareness. Right. I mean, like, I think that people who don't really know themselves, like you talk about that great salesperson, I bet you he knows what he's doing. I bet you he, he, he authentically is that, that individual. I find that if you're not self-aware and you're not authentic, you land up being the used car salesman. That is that stereotype, right? Where it's, it's just like, you know, today, only today, uh, but really good sophisticated salespeople always have that air of, of authenticity and self-awareness that I believe is a, is a born trait. I know my friends who lack self-awareness and there's nothing they can do to become more self-aware. They just don't have it. I'm wondering if you agree with that. Well, I think just generally self-awareness and authenticity are probably just increasingly the keys to success. And I will say that to the extent that sales is like entrepreneurship, I think it's, it's the critical ingredient for success running your own business is authenticity. You know, understanding who you are, understanding what you're good at and what you're not good at, and not really trying to correct the things that you're not good at, but just trying to enhance the things that you are good at so that they can speak more clearly and pierce through more noise because you're just so yourself. When, I, when my life changed, that was part of the change. I've never understood this. It's so interesting. When people ask in an interview, like, what are your three weaknesses? Honestly, if I was in that situation, I'd say, well, I can't sing, I can't fucking dance, I can't you know, play the yodel, but you're hiring me to sell this product and I'm damn good at that. Like, I've never understood the idea of working on your weaknesses. It's always been bizarre to me. It's like, you look at a guy like Michael Jordan or LeBron James, they spend 100% of their time focusing on being the best basketball player they could possibly be. Do you think he's worried about how good of an accountant he is and how well he does his taxes? It's so silly to me, because why would I work on a skill set where I'm bad at it and someone else is naturally gifted at it? Why wouldn't I just double down on my natural gifts? I think well-rounded people are boring, to be honest with you. I think, I think people that are excellent at something add a lot more to society and to uh, you know, business than well-rounded individuals. I agree with that. And I will concur that I've been getting the same feedback about my behavior for my entire career and have not yet figured out how to moderate it or how to make it better. And I've stopped trying. And I, but the awareness is helpful, I suppose. But the feedback I've always gotten is, you know, you're very moody. Some days, you know, when, when we're making sales, you're so excited and you're so happy. And we're not making sales, you're kind of down and you're low energy. And, you know, you should change that. You should just be more consistent and more passive and neutral, like the majority of the time. And I've never been able to do that. <laughs> just, I think what I found is that I just clarify and transparently tell people, listen, if we haven't made a sale in a bunch of days, you're probably going to see me in a bad mood. It's because I really, really care about this company winning and I take it personally. And I get, I know that that's maybe some people would say you shouldn't, but. When I hear people complain about others, like our, my COO, he's, he could be challenging at times, he's, but he's incredible at what he does. He, he's, a, he's a rocket scientist from Princeton, EMBA from Kellogg. 
And I always say to people, I say, you cannot love all the things that he brings to the table or she brings to the table and then get upset that it comes with an equal and opposite reaction. Like you can't pick and choose because what makes someone excellent at that also makes them this way. So you have to accept the whole to appreciate the, the pros because you're always gonna have things like, especially if, you, if you're extremely good at something, if you're extreme, whatever that might be, it is going to come with eccentricities, always. You know, this is a mantra of mine. So I could not agree with you more. And my, there's a phrase from uh, The Power Broker, which is a book about Robert Moses by Robert Caro about building New York and New York State. But anyway, there's a famous governor of, of New York who ran for president, Al Smith. And he was from a very poor neighborhood and he grew up working class and never went to college. And he was likable and lovable and just did great things for the state of New York. And there's a statement in there that says, you know, the only problem with Al Smith, he, would, he wasn't a college man. And the person responds, well, if he'd have been a college man, he wouldn't have been Al Smith. 100%. And we say that 100%. in my family all the time. 100%. Yeah. So, Sam, we don't have a lot of time left. I wanted to switch gears and talk about the Revenue Collective. Such an interesting organization. I mean, I learned about it fairly recently through a mutual contact of ours and just being really fascinated by, by, uh, by that organization and why it took so long for someone to actually, you know, start something like that. For, for those who don't know what the Revenue Collective is, maybe just give a synopsis of, of what you guys do. Sure. We are a private membership organization. So you pay monthly or annual dues to be a member. And we call ourselves a career enablement platform. And what does that mean in practice? That means that we bring people together. And today it's about 3,100 people all over the world. We bring those people together. They're not homogeneous because they look the same or they come from the same country or they're the same age. They're homogeneous in terms of function. So they're all revenue uh, customer facing executives and, and aspiring executives. That's the common theme. So we don't really let founders or CEOs join. We don't let investors join. We don't let uh, headhunters or search firms join. We try to keep the thing that the people do within the community fairly consistent. And then from there, we bring them together in all kinds of ways to help them answer questions about their job in moment. So, you know, you're encountering a new challenge. You want help dealing with that challenge. We can help you. We help you find jobs and we help you negotiate more effectively for those jobs. And so, you know, one way to think about it is it's like if a social networking platform like a LinkedIn, if LinkedIn charged us all to have a profile, not to search the database or scrape data or solicit people, but it charged all of the users. And instead of calling them users, they called them members because they were now customers of LinkedIn. If we were all customers of LinkedIn and we paid them a monthly fee that we could cancel at any time, what would that look like and what would the world look like? And I think it would look very different because we because LinkedIn would be working for us, not for headhunters, not for investors, not for SDRs. They would be working for us to help us in our goals and objectives and careers. And that's what we want to do. We want to basically invert the existing social media, professional social media platforms and say, let's put the person, the human being at the center of the entire construct and let's charge them a monthly fee that's very straightforward and pour as much value into that monthly fee as we can so that we can help them. And if they don't like it, they'll cancel. And if they do like it, they'll stay. And you talked about an educational program as well. Yeah, I mean, all of it is about- The the Revenue Collective? What's that? That part of the Revenue Collective as well? Yeah, all of it is part of, again, the the, the point of what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, let's actually help you. So, So what does actual help mean? It means let's tell you how much everybody makes not on an individual, you know, by name basis, but like, let's create our own benchmarks for compensation and for equity structures. Let's try and 
uh, shift the terms of typical executive employment agreements, perhaps to rebalance them. If we're all going to work places only a year and a half, which is the average tenure of most high growth executives, then let's make sure that we're compensated in the right way. Let's be a place where you can ask all of the sensitive questions that you can't ask out loud to anybody else, particularly to your CEO or to other people in your company because you're too nervous to do it. Let's get all of that information and really empower people. And how young is too young to join? What, 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 how, where do you have to be in your career? We have an associates program. So entry level is, is uh, you know, in terms of experience, I think is probably the, the more PC way of uh, articulating it. But entry levels probably is not appropriate. But, you know, if you're a manager or a high performing individual contributor and you're ambitious because you'll be investing in your own career and you want to get to the C-suite to the point of what advice do I have? then you're appropriate for our associate program. We've got a big community in Toronto. We've got a big community all over Canada, actually. And then if you're you know, a VP or above, you've achieved a VP title in sales, marketing, customer success, or operations, then you can be part of our executive community. But we're going to be rolling this out not just for sales. We're actually launching Operations Collective in next year, which will be for finance, HR, and legal professionals. But the same ethos, the same vision, the same values. It's about you as a human being. We're not selling your information to third parties. We're not going to try and build a big advertising business. So it's going to be a, a small, you know, smaller than LinkedIn. It's going to be a smaller, more contained community. But people are, are focused and dedicated to helping each other within that community achieve their career goals. So Sam, really appreciate you being on the podcast. You know, before I let you go, is there any words or advice you can give to people that are listening to this that, that really you know, want to be in your shoes are there any things you would say avoid or, or double down on as they are starting their careers or on the path uh, in a long way? I would say to the point of the comment I made earlier, you know, the thing a lot in my life changed. Well, one of the things I say is the competitive advantage goes to the person that takes their life seriously the earliest. So mm-hmm. if your friends are out there partying every night, you know, and uh, drinking and drugging and doing whatever they're doing, and you can be the person that's just focused on your career and focused on being as great an employee, as high energy an employee as possible, you'll have an advantage. And that advantage will compound over time because the slopes of your curves will be different. The second thing I would say is, again, to think about working backwards from a vision and really trying to understand where do you want to go and planning for it and not thinking about the future as totally, basically taking control and taking agency over your life and saying, things aren't going to happen to me, I'm going to happen to them. And I'm going to plot out generally where I want to go. Obviously, there's going to be some twists and turns, but having a vision of where you want to be in five to 10 years. And then to your point, the self-awareness to constantly reflect on where you are along that journey, I think is something that not enough people do, which is a way of saying, you know, set some goals. But fundamentally, it's about putting yourself in your own shoes in five years and looking around you, the tastes, the sights, the smells that you see and figuring out and, and assuming that you're happy, this is what you want, and then describing it so that you can orient yourself in that direction as early as possible. Love that. It's a great way to end this, Sam. So for those who, who want to get a hold of you or want to follow along your journey, I know that we'll, we'll link to your podcast. I know we'll, we'll link to the Revenue Collective, but is there any, is there any other way that uh, they can follow along? Sure. You can send me an email, sam at revenuecollective.com. I'm happy to be of help. If you want to find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash the word in forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. Those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. Once again, Sam, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Great being here. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.